Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, I'll turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 is where we're going to be to end our series on Isaiah. There's a radio station that I like to listen to. I listen to it quite frequently called the New Air One. It's a Christian music radio station. It's evolved over the years. Uh, originally, when um, I first started listening to it, it was more of what's called Christian rock. And then it later evolved into more of what's called modern or, or, or popular worship. And as we were listening to it a couple of weeks ago, we were in my truck, and one of my boys asked, when is the New Air One no longer going to be new? It was, a, it was a kind of ironic question. I started to kind of laugh at it because um, what he was pointing out was something that I've noticed myself is that they have been new Air One uh, for a very long time. In fact, I looked it up on Google and it turns out that they turned into the new Air One January 1st, 2019. So this station has been new for just about two years now. And it really kind of pushed to the front a question that's found in this text. What is new mean? What can be meant by the use of the word new? It can mean that it has never been used. It can be something still in the package, brand new, has all the cables and the, and the instructions and such. That's never been used. New can also mean that uh, it's like nothing that you've ever seen before. You know, the phone that is in your pocket, uh, even if you got the newest one, it's pretty much like the last one, right? But think about the very first time there was a telephone call. The very first telephone was like something that no one had ever seen before. That's different use of the word new. It could be improved or better. You can get a blender. It still blends things. Your old blender blended things. But this one has features or functions that are different. It's improved or it is better. It can also mean that it is new to you. You can buy used tools from somebody online, stick them in your garage. They're new to you, and I bet they work great, but they're not actually new, but you might say that they are your new tools. And then finally, new can also mean that it just works. If you've ever been in a situation to buy a new refrigerator, nobody likes to buy new refrigerators. They're expensive. But when you do get to that point, it's usually after your refrigerator has stopped working uh, a number of different ways. The ice machine now kicks out uh, like half-crunched, half-whole uh, ice. The water kind of works. Sometimes the light is out and it's not the bulb. Then you get a new refrigerator, and although you're excited that you have a new refrigerator, it's not the newness of it that makes you so happy. It's just the fact that it works. It just works the way that it is supposed to work. All of that, those different uses of the word new, never used, nothing seen before, improved or better, new to you, or it works. Make me ask the question, what does God mean in Isaiah 65 verse 17 when he says, for I will create a new heaven and a new earth. What does he mean by the word new? And what implications does that have for us? When God says that he is making things new, or when we speak about God making things new, what do we mean and what does it mean that we live in a day and a time and an earth that seems desperately in need of being made new, of being made right, of working? What do we do when we get this new one? 
When do we get this new one? And one that is improved. Is it one that is improved? Is it better? Is it something like we've never seen before? Or is this new earth that God is making just works? Does it just work the way it's supposed to work? That's what we're going to talk about today. But first, let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, be with our hearts and our minds. Be with my mind as I try to recall what it is that I have studied this week. May it be delivered and received by those who are here today to receive it. Those who are online, may they feel part of the community even though they cannot be here with us personally. God, today we lay our hearts down on these words that the past events will not be remembered or come to mind. That whatever this new thing is that you are creating, God, may we experience that sort of joy in part now, looking forward to the day in which we would experience it fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Like I said, our text is Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. That's the verses that Rich read. That's the verses that we will cover this morning, and it's going to end our Isaiah series. We've spent quite a long time in this book taking apart. We've looked at different things like the idea of being fake in our religion, that people can look like they're doing the right thing on the outside, but their hearts can be far from God. We've talked about the idea of putting your faith and your trust in Jesus and in God, knowing that any other thing that you put your faith and trust and hope in will come up wanting. It'll be lacking. We've talked about the idea of pursuing God and his actual will for your lives in a way that does not harm or hurt other people, that the way that we treat other people is reflective of the way that we see God and the way that God empowers us. Today we are going to talk about, or in this series, starting Luke next week, with that idea of God creating all things new. This text is different, much different than the other text that we have studied in Isaiah. If you will remember, when I started the series in Isaiah, I pointed out that often we think of prophets as bearded guys, disheveled, standing out in the middle of the wilderness, telling everybody that this is what is about to happen. In 40 days, the Lord will judge Nineveh. That's the way that we see prophets but, as we've said, most of the texts that we have studied have looked at Isaiah speaking to contemporary people about contemporary issues. He was talking to the people of his day and time about his day and time. This text, though, talks about a future event, an event that Isaiah wrote about 800 years before the birth of Christ. And here we are, 2,000-some-odd years after the birth of Christ, and these events still have not taken place. One of the challenges with reading or studying and particularly preaching Isaiah is that he will move so fluidly between different applications of what he is saying. For instance, when we talked about the suffering servant, in some verses, in the very same verse, Isaiah referred to the suffering servant in application toward Israel. and the next part of the verse, he referred to it in application toward Jesus or the Messiah. It takes some studying or some skill to see which one it is that Isaiah is referring to. He does the same thing in this text. He is talking about a future event, but it's two different time frames. It's two different time frames that he moves back and forth between. The first one that we will talk about, predominantly talk about today, is commonly referred to as the millennial reign. It's a time in which Jesus comes back to the earth and physically and visibly rules the earth. He does so with justice and he does so with grace. During that time, Satan is bound and he's held at bay and people live their lives as described in this text here. There's a second time frame 
that is most commonly referred to as the new heaven and the new earth. It is referred to that way in Peter. It is also referred to in that way in Revelation. That time frame happens after what we call the the battle of Armageddon, when evil is fully destroyed and Satan is completely um, captured, completely thrown into the lake of fire, when Jesus establishes eternity. Those two different time frames are woven together in this text. In West Texas, and in other places, but the only place that I have seen it is in West Texas, is um, this, charge, uh, this large windmill farm. Huge windmills. And the first time that I saw those, uh, they, they seemed to be like giants to me. These massive uh, structures in the middle of this open field. And as we approached them, they looked like they were so close together. I was amazed not only at their size— but how closely they were grouped together as they, what seemed like, very slowly turned in the wind. When we got closer and closer to them, I realized that they were much further apart than it perceived in my uh, perspective, than I perceived in my perspective. This week, I looked it up on Google and did the little measurement tool. I found the windmill farm there and figured out how far, on average, most of those windmills were apart. What looked like a group of giants huddled together were actually over a thousand feet apart on average. They looked like they were right next to one another, but in reality, they were much further apart. That's because of my perspective. Isaiah wrote this text a long time before it happened. From his perspective, all of the events that are going to happen look like they are right together. But as we have lived it out, we have seen that they are much further apart in reality. That's why he does that, and that's why sometimes it trips us up when we read it. The important thing, however, is for us to remember as Baptists and as Christians that it is not our job to figure out what God did not tell us. If God wanted you to know something, he would have told you. He would have written it down. It is important for us to focus in on what it is that God said, what he wrote down, and what he has communicated to us. Therefore, for the purposes of our conversation this morning, it is much more important not to know when God will make things new, but only that God is going to make things new. It is not important for us to know the exact day or the exact time. He didn't tell us that. But what is important is that we would take hope and trust and observe that God is making things new. When we talk about this newness, there is a dominant theme there is a predominant characteristic to the newness that God is providing for us. You can find that in verse 18 and 19. This is what the Word of God says, Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. Six times in this text, and repeatedly in other texts, God refers to this concept or this idea of joy, joyfulness, being glad, enjoying, and rejoicing. The word joy itself is used several hundred times in the Bible. The command to rejoice is used several hundred different times in the Bible. God's theme or God's goal is to create a newness that is enjoyable. Joy in the New Testament is a fruit of the Spirit, which teaches us that it is not something that we can merely muster up. It is not something that we can call on our own or make happen. Despite our circumstances, we cannot on our own make ourselves joyful. 
We need the Holy Spirit working within our lives to provide for us joy. Joy is something that we pursue at all ages of our lives and all stages of our lives. We chase after it in our careers and in our relationships and in the way that we use our life. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 2 is about an author, about a man who did that, chased joy and wrote about it. He said, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does that accomplish? You see, there is a very real reality that regardless of our upbringing and our backgrounds of our lives, of our perspectives, of our personalities, that we all chase after joy repeatedly. We are looking for something that will mean something, that will provide happiness in the midst of whatever, whatever circumstances come our way. Isaiah 65 verse 19, our same text, the verse I just read a minute ago, God speaks to this when he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. You see, what God is saying is that when he makes all things new, they will be joyful in that he will eliminate, destroy, pull away those things that cause weeping or cause crying. Even this last week, as we think about the holidays, as we think about Thanksgiving, there were people within our second family, within our community, those people that we know, many of you, who felt sadness, who experienced grief, even in the middle of what we consider to be joyful, Thanksgiving. They did so because in this season, we're supposed to distance. We're not supposed to be with one another. People were afraid that they are either carrying a virus that they don't know about or they were going to get somebody else sick or somebody was going to get them sick. That thing robbed what is normally joyful of its joy. People experience that. We experience that. And God is talking about a day in which no matter what it is, this new creation, this new heaven, that the weeping and the sadness will be taken away. The things that rob us of joy will be destroyed. That's what the dominant characteristic of the new is. When we ask, what kind of new is God creating? He's creating a joyful one, one to be enjoyed. He goes through the next several parts, next several verses, just speaking about three different aspects of the human experience. As we live this millennial reign with Jesus, our lives will be drastically different. They will be joyful in three dominant ways. Three ways in which we all experience. The first one is found in verse 20. In her, this new earth, this Jerusalem, he calls it, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man. The one who misses a hundred will be considered cursed. The first joyful aspect of the life with Christ, this millennial reign, will be a joyful life, true living, what we call a full life. There will no longer be what he describes here as stillbirth or miscarriage. There will no longer be what he describes here as dying too young. When a person passes away and we have a funeral and, and we gather together and we speak of their life, it doesn't matter if their name is on the side of a building or if there's some foundation or charity that is named after them. When we gather around them and we speak of them, we talk about things like their family, 
about how they loved their family and their family loved them back, how they accomplished some of the goals that they set out to accomplish, how the people who knew them were changed for the better. And to those people, we describe them as being people who lived a full life, a full life. Even though we would all admit there are many, many accomplishments, many, many possessions that they did not possess, accomplishments that they did not achieve, that it's in that fullness of life that we celebrate, that we remember, that we are happy about, that we find joy. This is the life that they describe there. No longer dying too young, no longer not having a life to live. He says that there'll be a hundred and consider just barely starting. This is the full life that he has promised. We experience that on occasion. We see it in the lives of others. We experience it in our own lives. And yet, we know that in this life, we are constantly walking in the valley of the shadow of death. That it is death that robs us of the joy of actually living. The death of a loved one, the death that we are marching towards ourselves. And yet in Jesus, death has lost its power. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57 says, When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can live this life knowing that we are headed toward death, understanding or hopeful, acknowledging that death has lost its ultimate power. That we live this life marching towards another life. While death's ultimate power has been taken away, we can look forward to a day in which life will no longer be an eventual death. We will have a joyful life. We will have a joyful work. Look at 21 through 23. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will, be, will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or, build, or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. There are times in which I feel as if my work is fruitless. That I spend my week and my days and my hours doing things that matter, that matter to no one and amount to nothing. And I think if you were honest, you would say that you have felt the same way. That you may invest in people only to not see that investment come to light. You can set aside and plan and fundraise for a building that you don't inhabit, that you don't go inside. Any of you willing to admit that you have a job in which you do a lot of paperwork? And as soon as all of the paperwork is done, you turn around and there's more paperwork to do. How many of you have jobs in which you try to help people? You do work, you volunteer where you try to help people and it seems like they don't want to be helped. And it seems like you can't help them. And no matter how many people you help, there's still more people out there that need you to help them. It feels like in our darkest moments, in our most honest times in front of the mirror, we feel as though none of this matters. There is nothing more defeating 
than to feel like all of the efforts that we are extending are worthless. God speaks of a time in 21 through 23 in which all people's fruit, all people's work will bear fruit. They will see the fullness of what they are doing. You might go to a job, you might talk to somebody, you might interview somewhere, and as you're interviewing with them, and you get down to the point where they're going to offer you a pay package. This is how much you will make, and then they will say, we have full benefits. Hopefully they say that to you. They say, we have full benefits, which means that your insurance is covered, maybe some retirement, some other things that are there. These are the full benefits of our work. But we all know, in reality, the full benefit of work is to see it bear fruit. See, what it reminds us of in the Bible is that work is not bad. Work is not evil. We were created to work. Before the fall, Adam was given a job to do. He was given something to steward. But after the fall, our work fought against us. The thorns kept us from producing what it is that we want to produce. In this millennial reign of Jesus, in this life that we live with God, when he makes things new, your work will bear fruit. There will be joy in that. I remember as a teenager, we bought some tomato plants. Me and my siblings, there were five of us. We bought five tomato plants. And then we grew those tomatoes. We watered them and we put them in the sun, stuck sticks down there and tied them off so that they could grow straight and tall so that if they produced any fruit or vegetable, depending on your point of view, then they would not fall over. We wanted to make sure that they were strong. And then eventually there were little green tomatoes. You've done this before, right? You've seen this. Little green tomatoes and they grew bigger. And then they became red tomatoes. We ate those tomatoes and they were good and they were sweet. And there was this reality. There was this goodness, this lesson learned. That work that produced fruit is good. That it is rewarding. That it is good to work. It is good to labor in these ways. The thief of our joy and our work is destruction and conquest. That other people will take your work and use it for their own good. That our work just corrodes on its own. That no matter how hard of a labor you do, right now, that's the world in which we live in. But God speaks of a day in which all of that will be made right. Things will be made new. You will experience joy in your work. You will experience joy in your life, joy in your work, and then finally, joy in your relationships. Verse 25, And the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust, and they will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. This final joyful aspect of the new world that God is going to create is joy in our relationships. This is the sort of visual, this is the sort of picture that no matter which painting you see about the new earth, there's almost always this aspect of a lion laying down with a lamb. Of the two which seem to be mortal enemies would lie down together and the lamb would feel no threat from the predator, the lion. It paints, it illustrates this picture of unity in spite of differences. That God created distinctions and diversity and differences. That God made some tall and some short. God made some skinny and some not. He made blue eyes and brown eyes. He made people who think mathematically and people who think philosophically and others who think artistically. He gave everyone a perspective 
Some are passionate about this and others are passionate about that. God made millions of different kinds of animals and plants. He made systems and processes by which all of that would reveal itself. He put stars in the sky and sent light ahead of it. God created things with beauty and difference and distinction. And yet he calls us to be unified or united. See, one of the things about our current culture is that we see any sort of difference as hostility. That anyone who is different or thinks differently than us or has a different perspective or has a different value system then they are considered to be an enemy and they need to be destroyed. They need to be eliminated. They are a threat to us. And yet the constant drumbeat throughout Scripture is that the lion would lie down with the lamb. God calls us to be united, not uniform. He calls us to be together, not the same. And so this sort of relationship is hopeful. This is a good thing that we look toward. That one day, differences won't be characterized as evil or wrong. They won't be isolated because they are distinct. They will be accepted. And they will be a part of these relationships. That the lion and the lamb would be together. These are the three aspects of the joyful new. A joyful life, joyful work, joyful relationships. So what do we do with this? To be honest with you, this is the hardest text I have ever preached. Primarily because, what do I do with that? What do I tell you to do with this tease of a new life that one day will be okay in the midst of a life that is not? What do we do with that and how do we apply that? It reminds me, it makes me think of young couples. When, uh, when a boy and a girl and they fall in love and maybe they get married, maybe they're not yet married, but they start talking about the life that they will live. And, and maybe you did this. Maybe you know somebody else that did this. I think everybody does this. They talk about how their life is going to be perfect. They're going to have two beautiful and wonderful and completely obedient children. He's going to drive a new truck and she's going to have a new car. Always. They're always going to be new. They're going to live in a perfect house with a perfect neighborhood, perfect lawn. And they'll have a perfectly groomed collie. She will make partner and he will publish a book before they are both 30 and they will retire at 50. They may even say something as coherent and something as perfectly insightful as, of course we will have our challenges, but we will live our life happily ever after. And anybody who has lived married for any period of time realizes that that's just not the way that these things work out. Your kids are beautiful to you. They're obedient on occasion. You will struggle with things. And nothing is more heartbreaking or hard than when your children struggle with things, whether that's social or developmental. That's life. That's how that works out. You will have a nice house, but it will probably leak and you will change light bulbs all of the time. You may lose your job. One of you might lose your job. Your cars will be fine, but maybe they will be old. In fact, if you buy a new car, it gets old very quickly, especially with children. Your dog will pee on the floor and has something stinky in its coat. And that part about living happily ever after together, that part, though, is strangely true. That part is ironically accurate. Because here's what we learn. 
as you live your life that it's not perfect, that it doesn't work out the way that you planned it to, that it doesn't go exactly how you scheduled it. It doesn't go down the path that you first created. And yet somehow in all of that, there's beauty and there's joy and there's love for one another. This is what I think that we pull out from this text. It is a strange reminder that the world that we live in currently is not perfect. That even though at occasions in our best efforts we peek at joy, it's robbed from us by death or, or rust or, or dust. It, it goes away by corrosion. It goes away by just these efforts. What it reveals to us is that the world we live in right now is not perfect, and yet it's not God's intention. That God intends to eventually, for those who are in him, verse 22 says, for my people and my chosen ones, there will be a day when all things are made right. All of your work, all of your life, and all of your relationships. So what this does is brings us to, to three applications. The first one is a realistic expectation. This is how life is. It is broken. It is flawed. That's the way that things are. I was leaving church one day after hearing a particularly large number of complaints about things. No matter how good things are, there are always people who complain about things. As I was driving down the road headed home, it sort of dawned on me that as a mid-30s-year-old pastor who's pastored for 20-something years, it finally occurred to me that there will always be people who complain. It is strange to me how upset I get when things don't go smooth, knowing the whole time that things do not go smooth. And yet I'm upset about that. This text reminds us that there is always going to be dust in whatever diamond that you find. It's just the reality. We just accept that. We realize that. But we also rightly apply a cause. We know that our sin and our own rebellion caused this problem. We should not look toward our own best efforts apart from Christ to remedy it. The fact is that everything seems to be broken because we have rebelled against the king. And yet the truth is that God is working toward an end in which all things will be made right. They will be new. They will just work. They'll be like nothing you have ever seen before. And finally, it gives us a confident hope that we can keep going. We can keep following Jesus to work with him and what he is doing he will be victorious and he will be successful. There will be a new day with a new earth. And so we can labor now in our valleys and our mountaintops, knowing that the end will make all of this fade away. That as verse 17 says, we simply will not remember. These are good things. These are hopeful things. I got my truck cleaned a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if it was kayak gear or my children, probably just me, but there was these, um, the seats got dirty. Not real dirty, there were just these markings here or there. For anybody else, if you looked at my truck, you'd be like, man, this thing is spotless, but not to me. There were marks on the seats, and it bothered me. I tried to ignore it, because that's what rational people do, but they got larger and larger, huge. 
They didn't get any actual bigger. Just in my mind, they got bigger. I tried to clean it. I bought product. I, I tried to work on it. I tried to clean it, but I couldn't get them clean. I couldn't get them the way that I wanted to get them. So I finally thought, it's been a year since I've gotten this truck. I've never had it professionally cleaned on the inside. I'm going to do that. I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to find somebody. I'm going to get this thing cleaned. It's going to look good. It's going to look nice. So I called around. I found somebody that I could afford and somebody that could get it done pretty quickly. Found a great deal. And they would be done in a couple of hours. And so I took them my truck. Once I took them my truck, then they told me that they could clean the outside too for very cheap, very good. Uh, they were going to uh, buff and wax the outside, shampoo and clean the inside. It was going to be perfect. It was going to be beautiful. And I, so I was like, that's great. Let's do that. I went to go pick up the truck at the time that he said to pick up the truck. And it wasn't done yet, which was actually a blessing. I was really curious if he could actually clean my truck as much as he said he would for the price that he said he would, right? And so I surprised him. And when I surprised him, he was down in my truck with all these extra lights and these little brushes, and he was cleaning everything. I mean, he was cleaning that truck like nobody has ever cleaned that truck before. And so I was really encouraged by that. I came back later when he told me to come back later. And I am telling you right now, my truck was like new. Everything about it was perfect from the front to the back, to the top to the bottom, inside and outside. It was pristine. It smelled good inside the truck. The outside of my truck smelled good. The whole thing was perfect. My brand new, beautiful truck. It rained that afternoon, and it rained for three days after I got my truck. It reminds me of this text. This is life. This is the way it is. Nothing good lasts, but there is good. Those good things make us think about and look forward to a day when it will all be perfect and it will all stay that way. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.